top of the mountain or down in the valley, whether we are going through the fire, whether it seems like the water is well over our head, you are faithful to be with us, and we are thankful today for your faithfulness. I pray that our worship has been acceptable in your sight, and I pray now as we open up your written word that you would speak to us from it that you would show us Jesus, that we would be changed from our encounter with him and your word. It's in his good and holy and precious name we pray, amen and amen. I want to invite you to look with me in the book of Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, as we jump back in, I was not able to be with you uh, last Sunday, and so we paused our uh, series on Easter. Uh, the next two Sundays, I will also uh, be out with some convention travel for our Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, we will. Uh, Dr. Jackson will will be a, a blessing to you next Sunday, and, and Mike Wren will be a blessing to you the Sunday after that. But today, uh, I hope not to be a burden to you as we jump back into Esther and we look at Esther chapter two, and and we're thinking about in this book, in this series, how Jesus is better than anyone or any anything else that we will ever experience in our lives, and how even though the name of Jesus is not mentioned specifically in this book of Esther, that we see shadows of Jesus all throughout this book, and I think we'll see that again today. And today we're going to focus on this idea that Jesus died a better death from Esther chapter 2. Now before we look at our text, let me kind of just uh, set the stage for what we'll focus on this morning by saying this, that in our lives, every one of our lives, we encounter three difficult things at least, sins, mistakes, and tragedies. Sometimes we encounter sin that we commit against others or sin that is committed against us or even sin sometimes that's committed outside of us but it still affects us in some ways. There are times when our lives are marked by mistakes, bad decisions that we make, times when you took information that you had and you made what you thought was a good decision, but it ended up being a not-so-good decision. Sin makes up part of our experience, as does mistakes, but so does tragedies. There are things that happen in our lives that we just can't fully (coughs) explain. We don't know what's happening. We can't understand why it's happening. Sometimes we do not know what God is doing. There are painful, hard circumstances that sometimes we see coming, and sometimes we We don't see them coming at all. Now, one of the things that will help us study Scripture in general and study Esther in particular is when we look for the sins, the mistakes, the tragedies that other people make and we see how they sometimes will complicate the story and we see how God still shows up in the story. You know, God puts the these occurrences in Scripture for our instruction to learn from them. And so today, as we work through several verses of text, we're going to see people who 
make mistakes and we're going to see people who have sin and we're going to see people who are about to go through tragedy and we're going to try to learn from that how we see Jesus in all of that. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. If you will listen fast, I will talk fast and I'll get you out of here by 2 p.m. Esther chapter 2 verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate, politics, business deals were transacted there. Mordecai was in some way, he had some position in the king's government. Verse 20, Esther, notice this, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther more, uh, obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. They are making, in verse 20, a decision out of comfort. Their thinking is, if everybody knows what we believe, some people aren't going to like us, and it could come back to bite us. Therefore, let's conceal who we are as God's people. Verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthun and Teresh, I think they used to wrestle for WWE, <laughs> two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold, they became angry, probably because the king made them a eunuch, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, these two men are eunuchs who are supposed to be his guards, his secret service detail, but instead of protecting the king, they're going to plot for his death. And this came, verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And now Mordecai is faced with a major moral decision. Is he going to do a good thing for a bad man? Will he say something to spare his life, or will he continue to remain silent and allow Xerxes to be executed? Verse 22 continues that this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and Mordecai, he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged, the two eunuchs were both hanged on the gallows. And it, this is very important for the story later in a few weeks, and it, this act of Mordecai, was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The king knows exactly who was going to kill him. The king knows exactly who saved his life. So what happens to the hero Mordecai? Surely Mordecai is going to get something. Surely he'll get a prize. Surely he'll get an award. Surely he'll get a gold star. Surely they'll put him at the front of the line when it's lunchtime at the buffet. Surely something good what happened to King or to, uh, to to Mordecai for what he's done on behalf of King Xerxes? But Xerxes, watch this, does absolutely nothing for Mordecai. You ever felt underappreciated or not appreciated at all after all you've done for someone or something? This is Mordecai's feelings. There's no reward. There's no thanks. There's nothing. Chapter 3 opens up and it says, after these things, five years have passed. 
when chapter 3 opens up. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Notice the word gag and Agagite? That's about what Haman makes you want to do, okay? Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne, Haman's throne, above all the officials who were with him. Here's a really important post outside of this scripture note. The Agagites were among the oldest enemies of God's people, the Jews. When God formed the nation of Israel way back in Genesis, the first people to attack them in an attempt to destroy them was the Agagites. And so now Mordecai, a Jew, saved the king's life, and his new boss is Haman, the Agagite. Verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. In this act, Mordecai is publicly opposing Haman. Haman is ridiculed. Haman is undermined. This is an act of defiance in the face of Haman. Mordecai, you know what it's like when you get a rock in your shoe and you can't take it out? You know what I'm talking about? Mordecai is a rock in the shoe to Haman. He's going to get under his skin. He's going to bother him. Haman cannot stand it. Verse 4 tells us. Which is back up to verse 2. Verse 3. Verse 3. We'll get there eventually. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see where the Mordecai's words would stand. For he, Mordecai, had told them that he was a Jew. All of a sudden, Mordecai pulls out his religion card, and he uses his religious beliefs to justify his actions for not bowing down. Why won't you bow down, Mordecai? Well, well, I'm Jewish. I just forgot to tell you guys that for the past 40 years. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, Haman wanted him taken out, but Haman didn't want the blame for taking him out. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, Throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, Mordecai thought that he could pull out his religion card and it would save his life, but now it's going to cost everyone else their life. Haman is plotting a genocide to destroy an entire community of people, primarily because they are God's covenant people. So it says in verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, this, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. King, I'll make you a lot of money, and I'll get rid of your problem. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring, that is the power of attorney symbol in their culture. He took that signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict was issued according to all that Haman commanded. It was written by the king's satraps and to the governors over all of the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with a king's signet ring. Copies of this decree are made. It is sent out for everyone to hear and obey. It cannot be changed. The decree is to kill all of the Jews. How many of us at this point we are expecting God to intervene with some kind of miracle, with some kind of angel, with some kind of prophet. God doesn't speak. God doesn't act. So it tells us in verse 13 that letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Haman's going to kill them, take their stuff, and give a percentage of it to the king. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out and hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That is to say that as the citizens heard about this proclamation, those who were not Jews were alarmed. Remember, I told you a few minutes ago that three things painfully mark our lives, sins, mistakes, and tragedies. Those three realities are everywhere in this text that we just read. They are everywhere in this book that we're studying. In fact, let me, let, let me paint a picture for you of the sins and the tragedies and the mistakes that have happened that got us to this point in the book of Esther. For example, God's people should not have continued in sin so that they were exiled. The whole reason that they are in exile in the first place, the whole reason that Esther and Mordecai are here 
here in this foreign land. What's happening is the result of sins that occurred generations before Esther. The people of God were sinning against God, so God had them exiled to Babylon. Had they not sinned against God, they would not have been exiled. They're here because of unrepentant sin. That narrative may be similar to some of our lives. We may be experiencing difficult and painful circumstances because our sin got us into a place that we're not supposed to be. God's people should not have continued in sin to the point they were exiled, but also God's people, they should have returned to Jerusalem. Because before we get to our text, what happens is that a new king comes along. His name is Cyrus, and Cyrus liberated these captives. And Cyrus, he didn't believe that man should own another man. And Cyrus said, look, you guys can go home. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, had told his people to go home. Some people did. Read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, and you'll see people who were alive during the time of Esther and Mordecai who went back, excuse me, like God told them to go back. But now 40 or 50 years have passed and Mordecai and Esther are in trouble because they're in a place where they should no longer be. They made a mistake. Esther and Mordecai should have been more faithful in their fellowship with God. So far in this book, we have not seen them praying. We've not seen them reading scripture. We haven't seen them offer a sacrifice. They will, but they're not there yet in this point in the narrative. They haven't gone back to Jerusalem to worship. We don't see them talking to God, obeying the Jewish laws. They are not walking with God. Those who are walking with God are being obedient, but Esther and Mordecai aren't showing us that faithful fellowship with God. In fact, did you notice a a theme in the verses we read? Let's us know that Esther and Mordecai should not have concealed their faith for so long. They, They kept it a secret. They concealed who they really were. At some point before now, they should have gone public. They should have said, we believe in the God of the Bible. We're part of his people. Had they done this, this decree would not likely have gone. In fact, spoiler alert, later in the book, when King Ahasuerus, when King Xerxes understands that his wife is a Jew, he wants to undo the decree, but he really can't because it's the king's law, and you can't change the king's law, which leads me to conclude that had they disclosed their faith sooner, Xerxes might would have shut this thing down before it got there. But they made a mistake in this as well. Had previous generations been obedient, had previous generations been obedient, Haman would not have even been here on the scene. Mordecai, it tells us, was of the lineage of Kish, a Benjamite which is the lineage of King Saul. Okay, hang with me. I told you, I promise, by 2 o'clock you're home. Okay? Mordecai was a descendant of King Saul. Haman was a descendant of Agag. The Agagites continually tried to destroy 
and annihilate God's people. The same thing that Haman is trying to do. Years before Esther, watch, watch this. Years before Esther, God told Mordecai's great, great, great grandfather, King Saul. He said, Saul, I want you to destroy the Agagites. Every Agagite there is, destroy them and do away with, bury, burn, whatever, all of their goods. Take them out. Saul did not follow through. In fact, he only allowed a few Agagites to survive, one of which was the king. And he took their goods and used it for his own personal gain. And so by the time we get to Esther, Mordecai's great-great-great-great-grandfather did not eliminate Haman's great-great-great-great-grandfather. And now Haman is trying to kill Mordecai. Had they been obedient, Haman wouldn't have been here in the first place. In all of this, I know you're thinking, Pastor, you're so encouraging. Hang with me. In all of this, God doesn't show up. He does not send a prophet. He doesn't speak from heaven. He doesn't perform a miracle. There's no evidence at this point in Esther's story, in the book of Esther, that God in any way shows up, speaks up, or acts up. How do we interpret that? What do we do with that reality? Here's how we interpret it. Your life and my life has been, is, or will be at a place in this story of Esther. There are times that we are in the dark. There are times that we have difficulty seeing God. There are times when we don't know where we're going or what we're doing and we wonder if there's a way out and we wonder if there's hope. And in those moments, some of us revisit our sins, our mistakes, and our tragedies and we conclude that God must be against us. This sin, we say, started it all. Had this sin not occurred in my life, this wouldn't be happening. Even though I've asked Jesus to forgive me, this is happening because of my sin. Oh, that thing in the past, that was a mistake. I thought it was a good idea, but it's a bad idea. And now I've got to live forever with the consequences. That was a tragedy that happened. I don't know how to process it. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened. And you get to a point where it feels like all the events of your life have overtaken you. It's like life is a huge river with a strong current toward death and you're just in it being drug along and decisions are made and circumstances are set and your fate is sealed. That's what we all feel like at times. But may I share with you some good news today? I don't care if you live me or not, I am anyway, okay? <laughs> in the midst of all this, in the midst of the silence, apparent silence of God, there's hope. But we miss it because we use a different calendar. Okay, for us, Nissan is something we drive, right? It's not a month. Not so in Bible times. 
Will you look back with me in chapter 3 and verse 7 and verse 13? It'll be on your screen as well. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. That is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adair. Now go down to verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old women and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. This decree goes out on the 13th day of the 12th month. Do you know what happens on the 14th day of the 12th month? The people of Israel celebrate a feast called the Passover. Here is Haman arranging for the death of all of God's people the day before Passover. Passover goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. There is a different nation, Egypt, under a (coughs) different king, Pharaoh, but they are are in the same situation. There is one who is worshipped like a god, Pharaoh, ruling over God's people and abusing them. Just like in the book of Esther, back in the book of Exodus, when Passover occurs, God's people are in exile away from the home God planned for them, away from the plan that God had for them, and they need to deal with their sin so that they can be delivered from their slavery, from their bondage, and from their exile. And so, just like a decree is given in Esther, so also does God give a decree in Exodus and he says that death is coming to every home with one exception, the home that acknowledges their sin and the home that repents of their sin. So the people in Egypt take a lamb without spot, without blemish. They confess their sins so that their sins go upon that animal and that lamb now becomes a substitute, the animal is slaughtered and the blood is shed. For the wages of sin is death and the lamb dies as a substitute. As a demonstration of faith, they in Exodus take the blood of that lamb and they cover the doorpost of their homes showing outwardly, showing publicly their faith unlike Mordecai and unlike Esther who want at this point to keep their faith private. In Exodus, they're declaring, we worship the God of the Bible. We're sinners who deserve judgment and death and the wrath of God. There is a substitute that has shed his blood, paid its life without spot or blemish for us. That night, back in Exodus, the angel of death comes through Egypt, and the firstborn in every home dies with one exception. People in homes that 
that are literally covered by the blood of that sacrificial lamb in faith and repentance are spared. The decree from Haman is on the eve of Passover. He's not the first one to try to destroy God's people. And just as God delivered his people from Egypt, he will deliver his people from Haman and from King Asuras, uh, King Xerxes, and from their captivity years later. This is all pointing us to one place. It rhymes with Jesus and starts with J. Jesus. Like Xerxes and like Pharaoh, Jesus is a king seated on a throne, but he did something Xerxes and Pharaoh never did. He got off his throne. He entered human history. He humbled himself and he loved and served his people. Jesus, here's the point of the sermon. And you're thinking you could have said this an hour ago, Pastor, but I'll wait until now. Here we are. Here's the point of the sermon. Jesus died a better death than the lamb in Exodus that is seen in the shadows of Esther. Because John saw Jesus coming one day and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Passover who died a better death than that sacrificial lamb would ever die. Jesus comes to us, a greater king than Xerxes, with a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. You see, we are like Mordecai. We are like Haman. We don't bow down to Jesus in surrender. But Jesus is unlike Haman. Jesus does not get angry. Jesus does not uh, get proud or arrogant. He doesn't have some vengeful wrath against us. Instead, he loves us and he serves us. You see, we're really like those two eunuchs. And the way we're like those two eunuchs is that we and I, we plot, the, the, you and I, we plot the king's murder. We conspire to kill the king of kings because of our sin. But unlike Xerxes, he doesn't have us crucified on the gallows. He allows us, rather, to crucify him, our loving, gracious, humble servant, King Jesus, looks people in the eye who have plotted his demise, and he says, Father, forgive them. Sins, mistakes, tragedies. Jesus forgives all your sins. You hear me? As far as the east is from the west, and he holds them against us, no more. Jesus takes your mistakes. Do you know someone who makes a mistake? You ever made a mistake? If you say no, you just did. You just lied, mistake. Jesus takes our mistakes, and man, we can make them. And he redeems them, and he makes a masterpiece out of our messes. Jesus takes the worst tragedies 
And he has the ability to turn it into the greatest glory. Sins, mistakes, and tragedies find their solution in one place. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him today? Do you have a relationship with him today? Let me speak to you for just another minute or two and we're done. Because every person in this room, you're in one of two boats. You either have a relationship with Jesus or you don't. There's no middle ground. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he has love and compassion and mercy and grace for you now. But if you continue to spurn his invitation, if you continue to resist his grace, if you continue to refuse to submit yourself to his lordship, there's coming a day in which his grace is replaced with his wrath. And I promise you on that day, you will beg for the mercy and grace of God, but in that day, it's too late. Nowhere does the scripture say tomorrow is the day of salvation. It always says, says today. So today, stop hardening your heart. Stop thinking you've got time. Because you're not guaranteed, nor am I, your next breath. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he has done everything for you to have that relationship. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's grace. It's simply receiving the salvation he offers to you. Those sins you've committed, they can be washed away. Those mistakes you have made, they don't have to be counted against you. The tragedies you've experienced, Jesus can cause good to come from it if you'll surrender yourself to him as your Lord and Savior. Now let me speak to those of you who've already made that decision. Stop living under condemnation because you are not condemned. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. You can't straighten what is crooked because we just don't have the ability. Crooked things can't make straight that which is crooked, but Jesus can. I don't know where you are in your journey with God. I don't know how close you are to him. I don't know if you know him. I only know where I am in my standing with God. But I do know that Jesus is faithful to take my sins, my mistakes, and tragedies and redeem them in a way for his honor and for his glory and for my good. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he is simply a prayer away. There are no magic words that you say. There's no secret formula that you go through. You simply, as best as you know how, pray, talk to God. We call that prayer. Pray to God. And as you pray to God, you admit that you're a sinner. You agree with God on what he said about you and me in his word. Confess and repent of that sin. 
express to God your desire to change direction and simply trust that the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to forgive your sin and change your life. When I pray in just a second, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, I invite you to ignore your preacher and just pray right where you are. A prayer like that, that admits your sin, confesses your belief in Jesus, and trust in him. If you're here today, and I trust many of you are followers of Jesus, is there something, and I don't know why I feel so led to zone in on this, is there something that's tying your feet up so much from your past that you can't walk close to Jesus today? Don't leave here condemned because you're not. You have a God who is an expert at making masterpieces out of messes. But you've got to put the mess in his hands. He's the potter. You're the clay. Not the other way around. So maybe today your next step is to say, Lord, I've been trying to fix it myself. I've been trying to do better and be better, and I can't. So Jesus, would you just change me more into your image? And maybe your step today is just to completely surrender your walk with Jesus to him. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing for just a moment. This altar is open for you to pray. We have people who are ready and available to talk with you about asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Whatever needs you have, Jesus will meet it today if you will come to him in this time together. Father God, I thank you that Jesus died for our sins, that because of him, we don't have to fear our future, that because of him, we can leave today with the full assurance that our sins are forgiven. So God, I pray for each one of us in this room today, whatever the next step is that we need to take, will you help us take that step for your honor and for your glory in Jesus' name.